This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Chris Cotillo here alongside Sean McAdam on the one Fenway Rundown we're going to do this week with the holiday. Uh, it didn't make a lot of sense to do one on the 4th of July. I feel like the uh, listenership would be a little bit low with everybody out grilling and watching Joey Chestnut. Uh, I don't even know what happened, and I don't think Sean does either. If he ate them, if he didn't, if it was canceled... Um, but we're not here to talk about hot dogs. We're here to talk about the Red Sox, as always. And we're going to start with, I think, you know, perhaps the most positive development this team has seen all season. That is a guy who last night uh, pitched another uh, really good game against the Rangers in a win, Brian Bayo. Uh, this is a guy that uh, I think everybody knew that we, uh, everybody around the team and everybody who watches and follows knew heading into the season that, you know, there was a chance Bayo would take a, a pretty big step forward after a good September last year. Um, but I don't think that anybody really knew that this type of performance was possible. He is developing very, very quickly into the ace of the staff. Uh, and let's just run down, no pun intended, some numbers uh, on what Bayo has really been over the last couple weeks uh, or the last few, month plus, really. He is three and one with a 1.82 ERA, 185 opponent average, and a 0.87 WHIP in his last five starts. He's tossed six or more innings in each of his last six starts. There's some comparisons to some streaks that Roger Clemens went on early in his career. Obviously, some Pedro comps, things like that. I mean, is this is this the the ceiling for Bayo already, or I mean, how would you characterize what we've seen in the last month plus? Well, I, I mean, he clearly has emerged as the leader of this rotation. Some of that is because of the unavailability of Chris Sale and injuries to others. But I think you're right. This is easily, along with what we've seen from Jaron Duran, the most positive development of the 2023 season is the emergence of Brian Bayo as this team's number one starter going forward for a number of years. We have documented this organization's inability to develop homegrown starting pitching, and it seems like that drought is over in a big way. We can go back and point to Clay Buckholtz or John Lester, whoever you see as the last homegrown guy they developed. Whenever you, <coughs> excuse me, whenever you start the clock, uh, it's clear that Bayo has become that guy for them. And two things stand out about. Bayo for me, Chris. One is his ability to make adjustments on the fly, uh, which I think you usually don't see until guys have more experience. We're talking about a guy who still has made fewer than, what, 20 or so starts in his big league career, uh, that he can go out and adapt to whatever he has that night, change his repertoire, uh, be more or aggressive, whatever it takes, as we saw him do on Wednesday night against a very good Texas Rangers lineup. This is not, uh, you know, going out and beating the uh, Kansas City Royals. That That's a formidable lineup that Texas rolls out. And the fact that he held them to two runs on seven innings on a night when, as Alex Cora noted, he didn't have his best stuff. Um, you know, that's one thing that, that I think we see. The other 
is the fact that, um, you know, he sort of defies all the things that you expect from a young pitcher. You expect there's going to be kind of a stinker thrown in there every three or four. He hasn't had that. Over his last 12 starts, only one time has he allowed more than two earned runs, and that one time was three earned runs against another very good team, the Tampa Bay Rays. So no dips, no slumps, no break in that development. And I, I also took note of the fact that, you know, it really is starting to feel like an event when he pitches at Fenway. People anticipate that. They kind of circle it on the calendar and look forward to it. No, it's not yet at the uh, at the same level that we saw with Pedro Martinez, but we're comparing uh, him to, you know, arguably the greatest right-handed pitcher of the last 40 or so years. So there's no slight in saying he's not there yet, but I, I think the, uh, the atmosphere, the environment, the excitement, the anticipation that used to fill Fenway when Pedro pitched is what you feel now when Bayo's on the mound at Fenway. Yep, 3.04 ERA and 14 starts, 80 innings. This is no, uh, by no means a small sample size. Um, you know, strikeout 70 and 80 innings, but just limits damage, weak contact, 378 FIP, uh, 151 ERA plus, which means he's, you know, 51% better than league average. And, you know, I think it's, it's you know, those two weeks that he missed to start the season, that, that ended up costing him. Um, in terms of an all-star appearance, which he didn't get, and it doesn't look like he is um, going to be joining the all-star team in Seattle. We'll get to that now. The Red Sox have, for the first time, I think in um, six or seven years, they only have one representative in the all-star game. It's Kenley Jansen. Uh, we had um, debated on here before who would make it. Alex Verdugo seemed like a good candidate. Masataka Yoshida, same thing. Chris Martin has had an excellent year. We know setup men, you know, struggle to to make it. And then, you know, as I said, Bayo and both him and James Paxton have been really good. And probably, you know, if they had pitched a full season at this point, would have been on the team. Jansen, I think, uh, fits under the big name who's had a pretty good first half. I think getting that 400 save probably helps him. Um, he has probably not been the most impressive Red Sox uh, player or really the um, – the best so far is is that a very good first half but not uh you know the dominant type uh half that we could possibly see if you look at you know this team in terms of war kenley jansen's not the guy who is uh first among war on this team but i think it just was kind of a matter of he's got the pedigree everybody knows who he is and um he got the nod. What are your thoughts on the Red Sox? First of all, you know, getting one guy in, is that a story in and of itself? And then uh, how deserving Jansen is. If we look at it, uh, he's not even, you know, in the top 10 in war with the Red Sox right now. Verdugo's first, then Bayo, Paxton, Connor Wong, Devers, Duran, Martin, Turner, Yoshida, and somehow Brandon Bernardino sneaking into the uh, top 10 or 11 here. Well, we, we know why he's not factoring in the war configuration, and that's because he doesn't pitch a lot of innings. So it's right. very hard for a closer who usually pitches an inning and appearance and only then in games in which his team is leading by three runs or fewer. So, you know, 25 or 30 appearances or so at the halfway point and about that many innings, it's hard to get a very high uh, war under those circumstances. So I throw that out of the discussion. We're talking about 
closers and guys who've had impact at the back end. He certainly has. You're right. He hasn't been without his faults. We remember the back-to-back blown saves against St. Louis uh, just coming two and three nights after that 400th career save. Uh, But I think this is, to a degree, a lifetime achievement um, add to the team. Uh, People look at his profile as a guy that is going to be talked about as a potential Hall of Famer. He could well end up with 500 or more saves before all is said and done. Certainly, he's talked about pitching deep into his 30s. He's got a number of years to go there, but he has provided some stability at that back end. Uh, I think he's deserving if you look at uh, the kind of season he's had. Um, And I think, frankly, a lot of the other guys on the team can make good cases, but not ironclad cases. Uh, You know, in a corner outfielder like Verdugo to have six home runs at the break, uh, that leaves something to be desired when you look at the production of others that are being named as replacements ahead of him. Uh, Yoshida is kind of a one-dimensional player, a very good offensive player, but uh, certainly a liability in the outfield. And Devers has been very streaky. The number, the home runs in RBI have been there, but not the kind of consistency and dominance that we've grown accustomed to having him uh, provide. So look, there, there are always going to be snubs and guys who should be there and not, but none of the guys that we're talking about offensively have OPSs even higher than, I think, 850. It's not as if anyone is having a season to remember among the guys who didn't make it. Uh, and as to the one all-star selection, um, you know, that this is a snapshot in time where the Red Sox are kind of in transition with some younger players emerging, uh, players with not a lot of service time or recognition like Yoshida and Duran. Uh, the one recognizable star player they have, Raphael Devers, is having a good but not great year. So um, I think if this becomes a pattern over the number of years, then it's certainly an indictment of the Red Sox roster building and their ability to appeal to the fan base. Uh, But for now, it is what it is. I think Verdugo should be in, and and the Red Sox provide, as part of the game notes, some numbers yesterday that – you know, uh, Verdugo sat down with Julian McWilliams of the Globe and said, you know, I think I was snubbed and there's some guys that got in over me that shouldn't have happened. And uh, weird for Verdugo to be candid like he absolutely always is. But yeah, here's some of the numbers. The Reds, yeah, the Red Sox. Here are some of the things they uh, put out yesterday. Entering Wednesday, Verdugo tied for third in baseball with 26 doubles. Fifth, tied for uh, fifth in the American League in hits with 91. Uh, ninth in average. Tenth in runs. Ninth in extra base hits. Leads AL outfielders in hits and doubles um, and ranks tied for fourth in baseball and outfield assists. Defensively, been one of the best outfielders in the league entering the day, ranked fourth in baseball with 11 defensive runs saved. I mean, leading the AL outfielders in hits, I think, is, is kind of a, a telling stat there. And, and he was critical of the injury replacements. Kyle Tucker, I think, pretty deserving. Julio Rodriguez. I think gets in because he's more of a name, not having a terrific year so far. Well, um, the game is being played in Seattle is an obvious right, factor right. there as well. Um, so, I mean, I think he should be in, um, but I, I think. I, I'm not suggesting that it would be a great miscarriage of justice had he been named, but neither can I get outraged that he got left off. I, I think he is borderline candidate. 
if he had been on, everybody would have said, yeah, that makes sense. And the fact that he got left off is kind of like, well, um, yeah, he could make a case for being on, but it's not the greatest injustice of all time. I mean, I think that the Red Sox are probably thrilled about this because they like nothing more than a pissed off, fired up, chip on his shoulder, Alex Verdugo. It works every time. He always, you know, uh, whether it's Cora calling him out or benching him or something else happening, he always plays well when he's mad. So I think the Red Sox are looking at this and saying, well, this is this is great news because now he's going to come out on fire in the second half. So uh, I think, you know, from a Red Sox fan perspective, there is probably more interest in the Futures game where they now have, um, you know, three different prospects. Uh, I think Drone got pulled out. So obviously, um, you know, Meyer and, and York leading that charge on Saturday night. That'll be something to watch the draft on Sunday, which we're going to have covered. And then uh, once the all-star game comes, just Kenley Jansen and he's a reliever, so he might not even participate. So um, not the most exciting thing ever. I'm going to ask you a question that we, we didn't have, we didn't plan for, um, but I am going to ask it anyway, because it's a curiosity thing. And I want to ask someone in the Red Sox organization, but why don't the Red Sox ever have anybody participate in the home run derby? It's been like 10, 12 years, I think, either Ortiz or Adrian Gonzalez was the last one in 2011 or 2010. Is there an organizational philosophy against this now? I mean, I think obviously Ortiz won it back then, um, but it's just kind of crazy. You haven't seen anybody. Well, uh, you know, I I think when you look at the players that have made the all-star team from the Red Sox in recent years, somebody like Xander Bogarts, while a complete player and uh, uh, an elite player when he's going well and he's healthy, uh, he's not exactly known as a home run hitter, first and foremost. Um, had Devers been named to the team as an extra, I, I could see him uh, being asked to participate. But the fact of the matter is they haven't had a lot of, uh, you know, pure power guys. Well, since... M- M- Mookie and JD never did it either. Yeah, well. And Mookie's um, doing it this year. Yep. Uh, and... And uh, Martinez has 20 home runs as we head into the final weekend of the first half. Mm -hmm. Um, But in past years, whether it just hasn't lined up in terms of guys being selected or being interested in doing it, uh, don't know. I, you know, I I know that the home run derby is a big part of the all-star break. And there are people who tell you that they enjoy watching that more than the game. I, I frankly, maybe this makes me an outlier. I, I think the home run derby gets tired after a while. It's watching glorified batting practice for two and a half hours. And to try to sustain interest for that, uh, for that long a time, I've never really understood the appeal of that event. I know that kids love it. I know it's a tough ticket wherever it's held in the all-star city, but um, I, I, failed to see the big attraction. It's, it's interesting maybe in the final round, but I think it, it, it goes on too long and it gets a little repetitive to me as a viewer. The last time the Red Sox had somebody was 2011. They doubled up Adrian Gonzalez and David Ortiz, both in it. Talk about star power in this one. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Adrian Gonzalez complained about how tiring participating in the home run derby was and well he had a he had a long night he finished he finished one short in second place behind uh robbie cano but if talk about star power here ricky weeks represented the national league in that home run derby so um you know if you gave me 
that, that'll be something he talks about on when he's inducted into Cooperstown, I'm sure. Yeah, that I mean, talk about a guy that you would never ever expect. Um, we're gonna kind of circle back to the rotation now because Garrett Whitlock got hurt over the weekend. I think, as you first reported on Monday, not the worst case scenario. They're calling it a bone bruise, which is none of us are doctors there covering the team. Seems a little weird that you can get a bone bruise from throwing. Uh, Cora didn't really seem to know how it happened. Anyway, they don't think it's going to be something that keeps Whitlock out that long, but they do kind of say that with every injury and then see where it goes. You know, I, I would be, as you probably would, with the All-Star break and how long he's probably going to be shut down from throwing. Surprised to see him before August. You reported Tanner Houck's not coming back before August. We know Chris Sale, who is throwing again, is not coming back before August because he's on the 60-day injured list and he's ineligible before August 2nd or August 3rd. Um, go down to three starters, Cutter Crawford. Brian Bayo, who we talked about, and James Paxton. James Paxton on the paternity list, but that won't be for long. Expected a pitch Friday. And then they've decided, for whatever reason, to do bullpen games, which um, I just feel like I understand the concept, and I understand it works for the Rays, and I understand that you know teams have found this to be successful around the league. But I just feel like they're getting to a point where you know they just don't have the talent on the roster to be able to do this every five days or, or twice every five days. And that was obviously a column that you wrote after the 4th of July game. Um, I'll just read one of my tweets, not a uh, pat on the back for myself, but a tweet that I think people really kind of resonated with on, on Tuesday, where you're just looking at uh, the state of the Red Sox pitching staff right now. And this is not a slight to really, you know, anybody who pitched because some of them have had good years, Bernardino being one. And, and, you know, there's some other guys that have actually, performed well but just think about the names here and what we you know knew about these guys heading into the season which in a lot of cases was absolutely nothing um brendan bernardino caleb ort chris murphy justin garza brandon walter and taylor scott were the guys that pitched for the red sox against a good team in texas on the fourth of july i mean those are bernardino's a waiver claim Ort. 4A guy, Murphy, middling prospect, Garza's a waiver claim, Walter, a good but middling prospect, and Taylor Scott, a waiver claim or a small trade from a week ago, two weeks ago. I mean, it gets to a point where um, I just think that, uh, you know, it's just like no-name city, and you can't do that every five days, and you sure as hell can't do that twice every five days. So um, you wrote it the other day, it's not sustainable. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. It's not Bloom's MO to go out and get an arm, but it feels like, you know, you, the fate of your season really depends on the next couple of weeks. You better go figure this out. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you go back and look at um, what happened where at AAA, they began the year thinking that Murphy and Walter and Brian Mata represented some depth that could fill in if there were any injuries. And yet Murphy and Walter... Um, showed with their performance at AAA over the first couple of months that they were not ready to contribute as starters at the big league level. Murphy, to his credit, has made some nice adjustments and been a valuable multi-inning uh, bullpen piece. Walter, somewhat less so, even though he's had a couple of decent outings. And Mata, as we know, has been hurt and isn't close to coming back here. So um, I, I think one of the issues is that they did not have the kind of emergency depth at Worcester that would have bailed them out. 
Uh, we know that they have a couple of guys like Barraclaw and Lamette who they're trying to uh, get built up and be available as guys that can plug in as, as back-end emergency starters, but neither of them is ready to do that. And all of a sudden, you know, you're piecing together games against good lineups like the Rangers and crossing your fingers that none of those guys make mistakes. And it's kind of a, as I wrote the other day, it's kind of like threading the needle uh, where a, if there's one misstep in the relay race, you're in big trouble. And that happened in the second inning when Ort gave up a three-run homer. They mm -hmm. never were able to overcome that. Some of it, to be fair, should be framed as a failure from the offense because uh, when you're not getting the kind of quality starting pitching, you need your lineup to step up. And too often, as we've seen in the last few weeks, it's one run, two runs, two runs, one run, no runs. Happened the other day. They managed just two runs. It makes it difficult if those guys who are running the relay race to, race to the mound do not have any offensive support. So there's plenty of blame to go around, but the it, it seems pretty obvious that the bullpen, the, the nature of the bullpen game and trying to get through it that way is not working for them. And Nick Pavetta is going to have a big role here, I think, either as a starter or as a you know a reliever who goes five or six innings. Um, you know, it seems kind of, I think it's a necessity at this point, but you know, Cora has said for weeks now, we want to keep Nick in the bullpen. He's so much better as a reliever. We like the stuff playing there. And now uh, they're going to lose as a result of all this, probably one of their better relievers too. Winkowski hasn't been good. They no longer have Crawford back there. So just the domino effect of this has been, you know, pretty insane. You lose Sale, you lose Hauk, Whitlock. Kluber's not a factor anymore, as we know. Mata's not a factor, as you mentioned, Murphy and Walter. And, and you're down from, you know, what seemed like 11 or 12 guys, an embarrassment of riches at the beginning of the year. Uh, is now um, down to nothing. And I think that's going to be uh, something that hits them in the face tonight when they face Nathan Evaldi at Fenway Park. And I'm sure that um, however Nate pitches will be digested and analyzed uh, ad nauseum for the last for the next few days. We sit here. Uh, this is going to hit uh, your, I was going to say airwaves. That's way too old fashioned. Your uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your pods around uh, five o'clock this afternoon. The Red Sox have four games before the All-Star break, the finale against the Rangers, and three games against the Oakland Athletics. So uh, in the world of Sean McAdam, they only have two games before the All-Star break because your annual Agunquin trip is, Agunquin trip is uh, about to happen, and therefore uh, anything could happen with the Red Sox, and it's just not your responsibility at all. Um, have fun. With, yeah, I will. With four games, at least there's no draft, All-Star game, all that. Uh, at least for the Red Sox. This is a uh, very middling team as we've gone over time and time again. I don't think that their trade deadline path is going to be necessarily determined by these four games, but uh, do you have any sense more than before on what this team is going to do um, later in the month heading into the deadline, or is it just still how they play in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I, I suspect there's going to be a lot of factors at work here. Um you know, uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see them take the same path they did a year ago where they're on the lookout for moves that can help them beyond this year, but not above uh, shedding some veteran help and restocking the inventory of, far, of, of prospects in the system. Um, I, I think it's going to be a, a unique trade deadline because there are so few teams clearly out of contention. So the old model of, of the contending team giving up 
uh, two prospects for a, some veteran short-term help. We're probably not going to see a lot of those. We're going to see more old-fashioned baseball for baseball deals, uh, whereas you know, team A has an excess of this particular component, whether it be bullpen arms or starting pitching depth or middle infield reserves, and team B has different needs and they match up. Um, so I, I think we're going to see a lot of sideway deals like that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The, the Red Sox do have the benefit of an easier schedule for the next week and a half. They have two series with the worst team in baseball, the Oakland A's. And I know we've seen the A's can pitch a little bit better of late. Uh, and they actually have had some short winning streaks. But let's face it, if you could um, uh, have your choice of six of the next nine games that you play be against any one team, I think most teams would happily pick the Oakland A's as that opponent. So they have that benefit. You also have the Chicago Cubs in there, a team that's not very good, uh, sort of foundering in the NL Central race, well below 500, underachieving. So the schedule helps once they get through the Rangers tonight. Uh, the next three series are eminently winnable. Uh, you know, there's no reason they can't go at least six and three in those nine. And, you know, if all of a sudden you're, you know, five games over 500 as you get closer to the deadline, then maybe that makes it a little easier to be aggressive and make moves. But um, we've, we've seen this team is also capable of playing down to the quality of its opponents. They have mm -hmm. done a good job beating up on the Yankees and Blue Jays. They've been competitive with teams like Texas and other good teams, uh, but they've also um, inexplicably faltered against some bad teams like St. Louis and others that have come into Fenway. So no guarantee there, but the schedule tries to do them some favors here in the next couple of weeks. I think that there's some moves that could be made now. You know, talk about roster crunches. I think they're at a point where they want Duran to play every day. They're trying to find ways to do that, including Justin Turner potentially moving to second, which Alex Cora talked about yesterday. You know, I knew Duvall has been really bad since he's been back from the injured list, but maybe, you know, look to flip him and, and get a pitcher now. I think there's a team that would probably do that for a depth starter. TK Hernandez is another guy that, you know, does not have much value to you right now as a uh, team that is going to get have a crowded middle infield mix here with Reyes and Chang back and eventually Story, but maybe flip him. I mean, there, there seems like some pieces on this roster um, that you could, you know, find ways to move and, and then get pitching depth. I know we talked about with Derek Falvey and, and amongst ourselves the last couple of weeks about those major league, you know, big leaguer for big leaguer trades instead of prospects. I think there's a couple of things that fit again. Uh, this is not a Red Sox team. This is not a Red Sox front office that usually, you know, pushes the envelope and tries to get these types of deals done early. They usually wait out the market and, and with the draft next week, I bet that's where all their focus is, but still, it's uh, a little bit frustrating, uh, you know, just because um, you just see these kind of easy on paper deals that they never seem to make. They never seem to be aggressive on. We'll move on to our last two uh, segments now because uh, we are running out of time, even though we technically have unlimited time, but you know, I got to get to the ballpark eventually. We need to workshop a name for this segment. Uh, Sean on the spot is what we're calling it right now. That is uh, maybe if anybody wants to submit a potential name, alliteration doesn't need to be part of the picture, but that's what we got for now. Um, with the Red Sox going to Wrigley Field next weekend, and you're going to be on vacation, so we're not going to have a chance to talk on the show uh, before that. I'm going to bring up the name Theo Epstein. I know it's a guy you know well, you've covered very well. When the name Theo Epstein comes up, what's one story that comes to mind? 
Yeah, I think the most um, the the thing that comes to mind immediately, Chris, and maybe it's because the Red Sox are headed to the north side of Chicago next week to play the Cubs first series coming out of the break is Theo's time uh, maybe transitioning from the Red Sox to the Cubs. Uh, of course, we all know the story of the disastrous end of the 2011 season that resulted in both Terry Francona and Theo Epstein leaving. And while it was jarring to have Francona leave after managing the Red Sox to two World Series, in some ways it was more unexpected that Theo would go someplace else um, because he had grown up in the shadow of Fenway. He had made it clear that, you know, this was the team he rooted for as a boy and, and went to Fenway and had this backstory. And it seemed storybook that a guy who grew up in Brookline just a couple of miles from the ballpark and then becomes the youngest general manager in the history of the game. And on top of all that, ends the 86-year-old curse. You, you just had this feeling that that was a job he was going to do for a long, long time. So it was harder to get accustomed to him not being in that position and then showing up at Fenway in 2012 and seeing him on a Friday morning on the field uh, as GM and president of baseball operations for the Cubs was was really jarring. And I think, you know, seeing him in that capacity really shut the door on that era of Red Sox baseball from 2003 through 2011, which produced uh, four trips to the ALCS and, and uh, two world championships. And uh, of course, Theo would go on to win a third World Series with the Cubs, and I think cement himself as a uh, as a surefire lock to one day be elected in Cooperstown. We also know he's gone on to make other contributions uh, to the commissioner's office and some of the rule changes, which we'll get to at some point. Um, but that was just a a weird thing seeing Theo being in charge of a franchise other than the Red Sox that day in 2012. You know him well, obviously. You stay in touch with him. Two-part question quickly. What do you think is next for him after the commissioner's office, and does he ever come back to the Red Sox organization under any capacity? Well, the second one first, I find it hard to envision him coming back to the Red Sox. We know that he and Sam Kennedy are childhood friends. I think if Theo – I do believe Theo will be coming back uh, in some capacity to work for a team – whether that's as a president, whether that's as being part owner of a team, whether that's uh, getting a an expansion franchise off the ground. I know that he's a competitive guy, that he misses being part of the day-to-day -day despite his continued influence and impact on the game. So I have no doubt he's going to be back. It would not surprise me to see him be the front person for an expansion bid once uh, Oakland and Tampa Bay get their stadium settled, it's pretty clear that MLB is going to add some franchises. I think Theo would relish the challenge of build, building an organization from the ground up, um, and we'll have to see where that takes us. Last thing for you, uh, Red Sox going to Chicago and Oakland on the road trip after the break. We covered kind of the Chicago part of it. So it's time for your favorite story from Oakland. And I, I know you teased it off air. And so we'll uh, have you take it away with that. 
yeah. I think my first year covering the team, uh, if not the first, then the second year, either 1989 or 1990, the Red Sox had a disastrous West Coast trip that began with one win in either Seattle or Anaheim and followed with, I think, eight straight losses. And in the final game of that West Coast trip, um, Mike Greenwell and Ellis Burks collided in the outfield and Ellis Burke suffered a season ending knee uh, injury that took him out for the rest of the year. And in the clubhouse afterward, intrepid radio reporter Johnny Miller asked Mike Greenwell if it could get any worse than this. Johnny was known for his rather direct questions to players and without missing a beat, Mike Greenwell and his in his uh, Fort Myers slash Cape Coral draw, told Johnny, sure, Johnny, our plane could go down on the way home, which had everybody kind of crossing their fingers for uh, that return flight to the East Coast. They returned safely. Uh, but that was my first exposure to the uh, then Oakland Alameda County Stadium and a, and a memorable one, both for how poor that trip ended and Johnny Miller's question of Mike Greenwell. And the Johnny Miller, Miller experience, that's uh, a, it's a question he's asked even during my time covering the team, which only dates back five years. I'm not sure if it was in 19 or 20, but can it get any worse as uh, one of the best? And along An old with, standby for him. Right, along with how long will you allow this to go on? This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.